Welcome to the Community Builder Podcast. The world is our classroom, and every moment is an opportunity to understand human connection at a newer level. On this podcast, we'll explore the minds of active community builders as they strive to leave their imprint on the world. Travis King. Let's build. Before we get started, we would like to thank our sponsor, Cruise Control Music, the ultimate audio branding experience. Cruise Control Music creates custom, authentic sounds and music to showcase your brand identity and is a direct reflection of your vision, goals, and values. If you're looking to start or level up your podcast experience, log on to cruisecontrolmusic.com. I just want to say um, your book was amazing and I've learned so much and I can't stop talking about it. Oh, thank you. Of course, you're welcome. So yeah, I guess if you wouldn't mind, uh, I guess letting everyone know kind of who Priya Parker is and kind of where your community journey started, if that's okay. I was born in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. I have an anthropologist mother and a hydrologist father and spent the first six years of my life, um, they would move every six months or a year from different fishing villages, uh, really, in first in Botswana, then the Maldives, Indonesia, India, um, and then eventually to the Hague and then eventually to the U.S. And I, so I grew up with parents who deeply believed in community, ironically, but they believed in it theoretically. My mother is an anthropologist and her work, her life's work is participatory development. So asking the question, when aid comes into a community, how do you actually use it in a way that the community decides while also still leveraging the experts of, the expertise of others? And so ironically, I grew up in a way until the age of nine where we were moving around all the time, but we were, and by we, I mean they, were <laughs> building tools to help people all over the world own their own kind of context, power, reality, while basically strangers are coming in with a lot of money. And so that was the context of my dinner conversations growing up. And then my parents divorced. They both remarried. By the age of 12, I was going back and forth. I'm an only child. I was going back and forth between both households. Um, and my they both kind of remarried people closer to their ilk. So my mother, my mother's house was kind of Indian, British, atheist, Buddhist, Buddhist, kind of vegetarian, new agey, incense-filled, um, you know, liberal, progressive. And my father's house was white, evangelical, Christian, conservative, Republican, meat-eating, church-going family. And I belong to both. And so my entire life in some ways is, is a exercise in trying to figure out who and where do I want to belong? Um, and what do I want to belong to? And what do I want to create that doesn't yet exist? Interesting. Wow, that actually um, drives me right into our first question about um, talking to chapter four of your book about creating a temporary alternative world. Being someone that has been in so many different worlds, you know, traveling from country to country, even going back and forth between your parents' house, how did you adjust? Like, did you just learn to become a chameleon? Or like, did you change or find yourself like not knowing who you were? I guess, could you talk a little bit about that? My husband often jokes that when I 
and with my father's family and somebody sneezes, I say, God bless you. And when I am with my mother's house and somebody sneezes, I say, bless you. I, I take the God out. And I never even knew I did this. And so I think there's part, and I, you know, if you're listeners, I think many people who are attracted to community building are often attracted to it either because they come from multiple worlds or because they didn't belong to somewhere. We tend to seek out the things that we need ourselves. And I was like that. I, I, at some level, I was a, a chameleon, sometimes consciously, sometimes not consciously. And growing up, I was curious and interested in how do you create temporary alternative worlds, temporary worlds where people can connect with part of their identity, but not have that one part of their identity substitute in for the whole, for for the entire, that we are each and all complicated people full of paradoxes. And that it's okay to to be that. And I think that the most interesting gatherings and the most interesting communities are the ones that allow for both a strong I and also a strong we. Interesting. I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into the communities that allow for a strong I and a strong we. Like, could you would you mind giving some examples of those types of communities that you've seen or you know been a part of yourself? I mean, one example that came up at uh, at Meetup when I I facilitated a gathering there with with you there, and you know, one of the rules I always say is you can share the experience and the story, but not attribute it to a person. So I'm following that rule here. Was an example mm-hmm. that one of your colleagues shared was that when she was in a when college, she was part of a group called the College Feminists. At the time when it started, it was Republicans and Democrats. And at some point, there was a somebody in the group that said, "You can't be a feminist and a Republican." It's a it's a paradox, and and what I would say in that context, whether you agree with it or not, there was an assumption of what the strong we was, which is feminist. At some point, there was a difference in what people think the traits are or the set of beliefs are that belong to that we. In this case, it was Republican versus Democrat. In in other cases in the in the country, it's are you pro life? Can you be pro life and a feminist? And for people who follow those conversations, these are very complicated and also very controversial conversations. And as she told the story, the group kind of fell apart. The college Republicans left. No one stood up for the other side. But interestingly, the entire group, if I remember her story correctly, dissolved. So in trying to, in trying to have a strong we, they kicked out the strong I. But in losing that strong I, they also lost some of their heat. And they ended up dissolving. I'm not saying that they shouldn't have necessarily kicked them out or, or argue about the categories. But the strongest groups are the ones, so if we were to riff here for a little bit and to say college feminists, what if they actually had, they created a gathering where they had people debate this out in the open and deeply kind of get into what does it mean to be a feminist? Does it mean to believe in equality? Does it mean to believe uh, or are you looking at outcomes? Are you are you a feminist that you believe in equal pay? What does it mean to be a feminist? Does it mean that you're pro-life or pro-choice? Or does it have nothing to do with values that it, that you can be equal, but it can look you can have different beliefs about the death penalty? These are very complicated conversations. And all I'm saying is that the most powerful groups allow for the heat to happen inside, not outside. Yes, that's amazing. And I think in terms of Good controversy. I think that's a a great way to promote good controversy. Do, do you often find, I guess, when you're facilitating gatherings, that good controversy tends to ruffle feathers? And as a follow up question, if it does ruffle feathers, how do you handle or facilitate those emotions and 
feelings. One of the people I interviewed for the book, so the book is called The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. And I went on a journey where I interviewed 100 gatherers, uh, my language, not theirs, and asked them what creates transformative gatherings. So I spoke with the dominatrix. I spoke with the choreographer, Circus Soleil. I spoke with a rabbi. I spoke with the photographer, a lot of teachers. And one of the people I met is a woman named Ida Benedito. She's an experience designer. She calls herself a transgression consultant. Um, She creates kind of provocative experiences that help people face things that they typically avoid. And she's lent me a set of questions she asked before designing every experience. I'm getting to your question. I think if you ask these four questions, you begin to see if you can bring in safe heat. So not all heat is equal and not all heat is good in the right amount. But what she asks is this. Number one, what is this group avoiding? Number two, what is the gift in facing it? Number three, what is the risk in facing it? And number four, is the gift, is the gift worth the risk? If you ask those questions and you come out at the end by saying yes, then you begin to create a gathering where... I mean, it's sort of a complicated process, but a lot of the stuff is okay when you get people's consent ahead of time that this is going to, that we want to do this. So there's a difference between a kind of, you know, Thanksgiving going badly um, because uncle so-and-so, you know, makes a racist comment versus a group consciously coming together and exploring something that they kind of need to talk about, but are afraid that it will go badly. And those are two very different ways of gathering. And what I'm saying for the community builder is not only to have the skills in the room when, you know, when something flares up, but actually what does it mean to harness consciously safe heat that if you can hold for long enough can begin to transform your community? Wow. I think that's extremely powerful. And honestly, I feel like I feel like some people who might be great community builders still can be hesitant to even hold or even look at this heat, right? I feel like it's not an easy torch to hold per se. It's not an easy torch to hold. And I think part of, you know, one of the dangers, I think, of community building, the assumptions behind community building is that we assume the community building means that you lose the self, you lose the I, you lose the individualistic elements, that we become a we. And the strongest gatherings, again, have both a strong I and a strong we. And part of the kind of the, you know, in every kind of gathering, there's a major key and a minor key. And, and I think one of the dangers of kind of the community building ethos or field or kind of the associations that come with it is that we only stay in the major key. And part of powerful gatherings is you allow space in for the minor. And the minor can be dissenting voices. The minor can be paradoxical identities. The minor can be the parts of yourselves you don't want to look at. And you need to do it in ways that feel organic and authentic and are safely held and held by the people in the community that have the trust for it and to do it, you know, with deep consciousness. Um, But when we only stay in the major key, it becomes a little bit rah-rah rather than actually building community around deep purpose. You know, one of the principles of the book is that the purpose of every gathering should be disputable. People should disagree with it. If someone doesn't agree with the purpose of your gathering, you're actually doing something. I give an example often of, you know, a, a grandmother who invited all of her adult grandchildren to her birthday party, but specifically said, no spouses, no children. It was like very controversial. And my, you know, my friend, when he was one of the adult cousins, he came back hmm. and he said it was one of the most powerful, beautiful experiences he'd had in a long time because she had fought for the space for him to bond with his cousins as an adult, which they hadn't done. They'd only, they were just replicating their childhood patterns of being cousins. And similarly, communities become interesting when they become disputable. 
Yeah, I feel like that's that's an often a common thread for, you know, growth and, and breakthroughs. It's that intersection between two people's extreme truths that actually cause this, you know, disagreement or this explosive conversation to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Great. And actually, in terms of kind of my next question, it, it's going back to chapter six about keeping your your best self out of your gatherings. Mm-hmm. And I often find that it takes a little bit of chipping, if you will, to kind of get to that second, third, fourth, fifth level when you're having, you know, these strong conversations. Um, I guess what types of advice can you give to people to kind of help realize that, you know, it's okay to be vulnerable in, you know, this safe place? Like, how do you help people get there? Well, you have to make that true. It's not always vulnerable to be, you know, to, it's not always safe to be vulnerable in a group. And so part of the vulnerability is to make sure that your purpose demands vulnerability. And if the purpose of your gathering doesn't need vulnerability, then don't do vulnerability for vulnerability's sake. So part of understanding why you're gathering, and I again, I'm using, you're using the word community building and my, my lens is gatherings in part because they're single events that you can kind of get, wrap your mind around and have a beginning, middle and end to. And, and so, and community gets built at gatherings, but, but they're kind of two separate concepts. Um, and so similarly, when you're, you know, I think in the air, there's this idea that like vulnerability is good. Brene's Brown, Brene Brown's uh, work has allowed us to kind of understand at a much more quantitative and qualitative and sociological way to understand why vulnerability b- uh, builds trust and, and builds intimacy. So that said, the first is to ask what the purposes of your gathering, ask what the purposes of your community. And and then the second is to design your gathering and design your community and the way you spend time together based on that purpose. So if vulnerability is helpful, then begin to frame and to you know ask people permission ahead of time. You can prime them in specific ways in the invitation. You know, one of the one of the gathering models that I've invented with a colleague is called 15 Toasts. And and in it, we the rules are you get together, you get 15 people, choose a theme that's related to the group. So it could be we've done them all over the world and we've done 15 toasts to rebellion, 15 toasts to borders, 15 toasts to America, 15 toasts to faith. like somewhat controversial words in certain contexts and purposely so. And the rules are you, at the beginning of the night, the host kind of gets up and tells the rules and they are, at some point in the night, we ask you to stand up, raise your glass, kind of ding it and old school style and give a toast to the theme. And the toast should be in the form of a story or an experience. And the only other rule is that the last person has to sing their toast. And so, and that kind of like moves the night along. And that, and one of the things we often say is like, we don't want to hear all of the great things that you've done. You're, you're here because you're, we think you're interesting. We, you, we, you're here because we think you're brilliant. Like to, to honor them and to let them know that they're okay, but to get their unbaked parts out and, and to do it in a way that allows people to see each other, but they kind of know that that's part of what's on tap as they go in. So when you kind of throw vulnerability in people's faces, it can actually backlash because it's like, well, who are you asking me to do this, right? So again, it works beautifully when it serves a purpose that people agree upon. Got it. No, that's amazing. I think that 15 Toast is definitely a um, a great one for people to, to have readily available uh, to implement when needed. Awesome. 
I kind of also am curious um, when I'm talking with people that you know have been building community. Um, I love to hear about the successes, but I also love to hear about the failures and what they've learned from them. Um, I guess could you talk to a time that you know that a failure potentially sets you up for future success and what you learned from it? In 2005, I think I uh, was the program director of the Sustained Dialogue Campus Network. And what that basically meant was that I traveled around from uh, college campus to college campus, starting helping students start and administrators start a process called Sustained Dialogue. It was a group-based process that's my, my core training, my craft, that it comes from the field of conflict transformation. And the idea is that you can transform a conflict by transforming the relationships of the people who are in that conflict. So in 2005, I was uh, the program director of the Sustained Dialogue Campus Network. And I, with colleagues, would go from college to college to, to speak with and train colleges, students, administrators that were interested in starting this process called Sustained Dialogue. And I went to a school that was interested. We were invited in. And it was a college, a university. And, and basically, long story short, we were... We ran the exercise the way we would we had done at other at least other trainers had done in other schools, and the whole thing kind of exploded. We we had to stop an exercise midway. Students walked out. Some were very very angry. Some were screaming at us. Some were, uh, you know, it just went very 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 badly. And this is literally like the opening. This is like our opening introduction meeting. It's not like we were in it and purposely trying to create heat. We were literally what I thought was you know sharing a process. Needless to say, we did not start a program there. But it taught me, it was a failure, and it taught me a number of things. It taught me first not to run an exercise, not to assume that an exercise will work because it worked in another context. Second, to know my audience and to understand the context that I'm walking into. And third, uh, and I think we did this well, is we didn't try to then, once it was starting to fall apart, we didn't try to ram through the exercise and pretend that we didn't notice that it was falling apart. We named that it was falling apart. We paused it. And at least the rest of the conversation ended up being an interesting one where at least we learned what was going on and we we changed our approach moving forward. It was a very liberal, left-leaning school that was, you know, it was the first time, and this is in 2005, that I ever... They refer they they were using, you know, they were very conscious of the pronouns they were using and they used the pronoun Z, which I'd never heard of before. Like it was sort of like visiting the future. And one of the things that I realized was that different college campuses and different contexts have very different norms. And when you're walking in to talk about identity or race or language that people are going to respond and react to the language that you're using. And so to be very, very clear and conscious about the word choice that it is that you're using in a context so that it's both hearable, but it's still true to what you are actually doing. Wow, that's impressive. That's impressive to share. And also for those that don't know, what did the pronoun Z mean, if you don't mind me asking? At the time, I think it meant the equivalent of what's now used as they. So the way it was explained to me was I identify a person identified as Z rather than she or he. I don't know if it was made up to that individual person or if it was a smaller trend that then has, you know, hasn't spread. But it was the first time I ever, I I was introduced to that language. Got it. No, thank you for that. I, I was, I was definitely confused when I first heard that. Great. And I guess 
we're we're coming closer towards uh, the latter half of the show. And one thing I also like to do is help you kind of relive some moments that um, you found very special. So if you could relive one moment in your life, which would you choose and why? I think probably my wedding. I think weddings when they are intentionally done is the probably the excuse, except for your funeral, the excuse where the people, the most people in your life will say yes to doing something that's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> and and that annoying could be traveling to India you know, in our case, or that annoying could be like making a fool of yourself on stage, you know, or that annoying could be like being in the heat for longer than you'd like. And I, to me, whether or not it was my wedding was the fact that whenever you have an opportunity where people are willing to take risks for you because they love you, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I haven't yet gotten there yet, but um, I also spoke with another community builder and his most memorable event was his wedding as well. So that definitely gave me some some feelings there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think, is there, I guess also too, speaking of wedding, um, maybe touch on this with, with your book. And then um, I believe your husband wrote a book too, right? Mm-hmm. Or he's writing a book. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I love this question. I would be very happy to. <laughs> so my husband is coming out with an amazing book in three weeks. It's called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Um, his name is Anand Gerdardas. He's a, a writer and a journalist. And this is his third book. And Anand basically spent the last three years exploring the myths and the stories that people in power um, have, and elites have kind of told ourselves about how change happens. And his basic argument is that the idea of world changing or world saving has been co-opted. And what used to be structural change and looking and arguing for justice or a society that changes is now focused on broadly market kind of market friendly solutions and that has and has been replaced broadly by generosity you know by philanthropy that you can you can kind of give you can give away you know the money that you've made as long as you're not structurally changing society and but the thing about the book that's amazing is that it's it's nonfiction and it's completely interview and scene based so I, I kind of like to joke a sort of gossip meets political political theory. And it's a, it's, it's going to be extremely controversial. It's, uh, it's a very powerfully argued book and it's a lot of fun. And, and actually for your listeners, if, every, if anyone is interested, we are inviting people to host conversations all over the country with their peers behind closed doors to read this book, Winners Take All, and to look at kind of the role that we, to engage with it, not as a book club to kind of analyze the text, but as a common text to say, where those of us who are interested in making change, where and what assumptions and agreements have we implicitly or explicitly been a part of that actually keeps a lot of the structures that we benefit from in place? Wow. I'm excited. I want to read it's, that right now. It should now. be. It's an amazing book. You can pre-order it on Amazon. It's, it's called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. And it is transformative. It's completely changed the way I think about and see the world, but particularly, I think our generation of people, I think particularly between kind of 25 and 50 or 30 and 50 are at this moment where we, we started off our careers by wanting to change the world, wanting to build community like your listeners, wanting to kind of be part of change that happens. And we're now getting more and more in positions where we're part of 
institutions that are saying they're doing that. But actually, if you look at the way that most companies and foundations and philanthropists invest, they do it in a way that preserves their privilege and power. And I think that the young people today have an opportunity to read this book and have a common text and language to begin to see the part that we're implicit or complicit or explicit and and begin to make collective decisions about what does it actually mean to really change the world in a time where inequality is actually increasing in the U.S. That's powerful. And I'm going to sneak one last quick question in. Sure. Um, uh, Because definitely being a, a younger listener in trying to figure out what I can do in our community to kind of help, you know, answer and solve these problems. What are some things or some tips that you'd give young people that are either too scared to join a community or don't have enough knowledge or experience to start their own? Join a meetup. And I really mean that. I know you work at Meetup, but I think Meetup is this lovely way, low-risk way that it's like low-risk high board to find, go online and find either to start one, and you know you all know this better than I, start one, make it specific, make it disputable. In, the, in my opening chapter of The Art of Gathering, I interviewed Scott Heiferman, and one of the things he told me is that you found that the groups that tend to be stickiest and last over time, the names have the most adjectives in front of them. So for example, like hikers versus LGBT hikers versus LGBT hikers with dogs. The LGBT hikers with dogs tend to be stickier communities because those are three distinct identities that are kind of put together and you've found your people, quote unquote. And it's not that you have to find your people from an identity perspective, but to have a community where it's specific enough to be seen. And whether you want to do that as a host or a guest to start there. I mean, one of the things I'll say, maybe we can end on this is I call this book The Art of Gathering, not The Art of Hosting. And that's because I think guests have incredible untapped power to shift a gathering, to shift a community, even when, you know, especially when the host kind of doesn't know what they're doing. And a lot of times hosts don't know what they're doing. I mean, they know to gather the people, but most of the, most of the wisdom that we have tells us to focus on the food and the drink, everything, the chemistry will take care of itself. Guests, and most of us, I know I am, we are guests much more often than we're hosts. And so as you read this book, as you think about you know community, to just don't worry so much about taking the risk of hosting, though do that as well, but take the risk of guesting. What does it mean to be a powerful, transformative, conscious guest that has an eye to the group? I guess, is there anything, like where can they find you or connect with you or pick anything up that you're working on? Yep, you can, thank you. You can join, you can sign up for my newsletter on parker.com. I'm active on Instagram. Take a risk, take a risk and tell me about it. You can hashtag it at the art of gathering. And to, uh, to join, join the conversation, I love hearing about how people have taken the book. You, know, you can order the book on Amazon or at your local you know, independent bookstore. And I love having people read the book and, and then take a risk and then tell me about it. I mean, it's, it makes my day. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the Community Builder Podcast. If you received an ounce of value from this podcast, share it with your friends. Oh yeah. Don't forget to leave me a five-star review. I need those. Remember... Each perfectly laid brick moves you one step closer to building your community.